Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddehy, as I look back and have a listen to some of the highlights from previous shows throughout the year. In this episode, Cathy Rensenbrink, Adam Farrer, Karen Jones, Ed Needham, Sarah Smith and Willie Maley all talk about a book they would recommend to anyone. Again, from reading your own book, I'm guessing that might have been quite a difficult choice to make. But interestingly, you've chosen quite a, a recent book, The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins. Yeah, I mean, I just, again, I could have picked a lot of books because I do like recommending books to people. But um, I, do, I love this novel so much. I write about it in the book because I wasn't, you know, when I, again, when I started writing books about books, I did decide that I wasn't going to write about recent books. Because again, that would just be too consuming. So I was still reading loads of new novels as I, as I was re- as I was really reading my old ones. I thought, oh, it'll confuse me. It'll confuse other people. I won't. I'll just cut it off. You know, I won't read it. I won't write about anything recent. And then a couple of things I just kind of slightly couldn't resist, or they crept in. And this was one of them because I used to have a thing where if I was reading a book that was really good, I just couldn't go to sleep. So I'd sort of stay up all night reading it. And I did that with A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. And then I felt really, really mad the next day. And then the day after that, so I just thought, I've got to stop this. I've got to stop this staying up up all night lark. And I went through a stage of not reading new fiction before bed because it was like too tempting. So I'd only reread before bed. But when I started reading this, and again, it's, uh, I've, it's, got the, it's got a picture of gold embroidery scissors on the front that turn out to be relevant to the plot. And I, you know, I ran my hands over the cover and felt this tingle that I sometimes feel when I feel a book is going to be particularly good. And it's just so completely brilliant. And it's, um, it's author Sarah Collins has become a friend, um, which is a great honour to me. But she says about how she just decided that, you know, because she grew up reading Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice on her small Caribbean island and then just decided why couldn't a Jamaican former slave be the star of her own gothic romance? And that's what we've got here. And I just love it so much. And like right from the very, very beginning of it, I just was completely in love. So I'll just read you the first couple of lines and then tell me, would you not just want to read this book all night? My trial starts the way my life did, a squall of elbows and shoveling and spit. From the prisoner's hold, they take me through the gallery, down the stairs and past the table, crawling with barristers and clerks. Around me, a river of faces in flood, their mutters rising, blending with the lawyer's whispers. A noise that hums with all the spite of bees in a bush. Heads turn as I enter, every eye a skewer. I'm like, yeah, so I did stay up reading it till about three o'clock in the morning. And I just, I just love it. It's a belter of a story. And, you know, our heroine Franny ends up on trial because people say that she's murdered her mistress, but she could never have murdered her mistress because she loved her. Um, So it's a love story. It's a historical novel. And yeah, I just completely and utterly loved it. Because sometimes so, you know how that when you, either when you read or when you hear like a paragraph like that or a sentence, and then as a writer, obviously there's part of you that is absolutely blown away. There's also there's also a wee part of me I always think that's some benchmark to try and reach. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't. I tend to just be inspired. I think by good writing. I mean, I didn't used to be. So you know, so for years, if you think, I mean, I always wanted to write a book and didn't finish one until I was forty-two. And I do think quite often I'd give up. I mean, I gave up for loads of different reasons. I did used to give up because I would just be overwhelmed by other people's brilliance. So I did used to think like, I can't be as good as Julian Barnes. I can't be as good as Hilary Mantel. Why bother? And actually then I did realise, you know, I don't have to sound like them. I have to sound like myself. The only thing that matters is trying to sound like myself. And when I teach writing now, 
That's what I'm always saying to people. Don't try and sound writerly. Don't try and sound like someone else. You're just trying to sound like yourself. You're just trying to really communicate as you. And again, trust that, trust that you're good enough, you know, that your experiences are good enough. Because that's what I find exciting in, in writing. It's the uniqueness of someone's experience, the cross-section of who they are with what they see and then what they can put on the page. That's what I'm in it for. I'm not interested in... I mean, I love reading Hilary Mantel, but the world wouldn't be a good place if we could all write like her. (laughs) But if we could, it wouldn't be good. Now, you and I have have never actually met, but actually when people listen to this, they'll think that we've rehearsed this brilliantly because uh, mentioning David Sedaris, brings us perfectly on to your next choice, which is a book that you would recommend to anyone, and that's Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim by David Sedaris. Yeah, I, I, I think I would recommend it because it, it feels like the gold standard for comic writing for me. Like, I think that's, that's the thing that I enjoy most. I like funny writers and people who can also move you. And I think he gets that, that balance really well in this, in this book. I think it's maybe the third or fourth collection that he, he um he released but that's the one where he really defined himself i think and really de- hit his stride there's a piece called six to eight black men that's about um his analysis of the dutch christmas story and the way that he analyzes that and pulls it apart and structures the the whole essay i can't think of a more perfect piece of comic writing than that so that is one of 22 essays in this collection it would it it would be the book i recommend based on that story alone yeah. But that, the whole collection, I think, from top to bottom is yeah, it's cl- as close to perfect as you was uh, you would find. I, again, it's it's one of the things that I say on, on every podcast episode, and, and you know some of the book recommendations are ones that I think I need to go and read because the only collection I, that I've read of his it was the Santa Land Diaries, which was the Santa Land Diaries essay, and then I think five or six other stories of are related to Christmas, and I really loved the book, but it's something that you know I've never then gone back and read anything else of his, but. You know, I just again just reading up on on, on that particular book, uh, it, it makes me want to go and, and get it and, and and read it just because I'm not. It's not something that I read a lot of of that kind of creative nonfiction. Yeah, well, he he is a, a brilliant starting point, I think, and also the audio recordings of that because he he really shines as a, as a performer. And I think that's one of the things that I really enjoy about him as well, being a, a spoken word performer myself. I like the the rhythm that he and the the delivery that he brings to his pieces. Like they really come alive when he reads them. I think, yeah, I I would rank the recordings of this like two or three percent more than the book because they they just lift it up even further. So he, I went, I saw him do um, a, a short talk and a signing when he put his his diaries out a few years ago, and he was talking about how he'd learned how to write through performance. So he would go and read these journal entries and read his his true stories in front of an audience and that's how he, he would develop like he'd learn immediately what was working as a, in a story based on that immediate feedback that audience feedback and it's it's a way that i've kind of i've stolen that that route really so i try and read as stories as often as possible in front of an audience and there's a line that you've really worked on and you think is incredible you read it there's a flat line in the room and you go oh, okay it's just it's just me then <laughs> and, you, and so it's a, it's a good way of um developing your writing i think so he, he's someone i look to a lot in terms of a, as close to an icon as I would have. 
And just the last uh, word on David Sedaris collection, when I was, again, just doing some research on it, uh, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, and I, apparently, I think he was once asked where the title came from. He said it didn't, I don't know if it related to any of this, he said that it, it was a, a dream that his boyfriend had had where he dreamt somebody was reading a book called Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, and I think he thought, that's a great title for a book, <laughs> which, if that's true, that is incredible. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it's not mentioned anywhere in the, in any of the essays. It's definitely just uh, plucked out of the air. But it's, yeah, and it's it's not a forgettable title either. I can reach for that when I'm recommending books. This is always a difficult one, I think, a book that you would recommend to anyone, because in any given day, you might yeah. think of something completely different, but the, the book you've chosen, this again, one, is, a, is yeah. a, a great book. It wasn't actually difficult, this one. This one, although my top five books of all time will change constantly this one has never left it and it's a, a prayer for own meaning by john irving we were actually going on holiday and we were going away for three weeks my husband and i are both avid readers and we had 16 books that we were comfortably sure we would get through in three weeks but we got to the airport i'd never nothing else in your luggage just 16 really books and, and one change of clothing yeah that was it, a pair of shorts and 16 books <laughs> so i got to the airport and i'm just idling around w smith i think it was and i saw this book and i'd never really heard of everything i think garp was out as a movie at that yeah, time so i think yeah. i recognized that and i thought okay but then i saw that book and i loved the cover there's an armadillo in the front of it i wonder what that is read the back oh, i'll just get it and i go back and alfie's looking at me going you bought another book we got on holiday and we got into the apartment and I started that book and refused to leave the apartment for two days. I wouldn't sunbathe, I wouldn't do anything, I just read that book. And he kept walking past me saying, it cannot be that good, no book is that good, just you wait. So when I finished, he found me in tears, of course. He Did found you not know just read it in the sunshine? But... No, I couldn't, I wouldn't, I, it's not a book for reading in the sunshine. <laughs> it's not, it's not that kind of book. It's just you need to concentrate. So he found me in floods of tears at the end of it, of course, and then he read it and he did the same thing. He just, we're not doing anything, we're not going anywhere till I've finished this book. Because it's extraordinary, even just the, the way it's <sighs> written with own meaning, everything he says is in capital letters. It's in letters. capital letters, the boy with the wrecked voice. Yeah. yeah. And Owen, obviously for anyone who hasn't read the book, Owen's not, the narrator is John, and it's set in New Hampshire, and John becomes friends with Owen. Owen, who is described as the boy with the wrecked voice and somehow now I was in my head here Gilbert Gottfried when I think of Owen <laughs> <laughs> that screech you know that's what I get in my head now when I think of him but I'd never heard of him at that point but he's also described as having virtually translucent skin and you can see through his ears and he's so small so underdeveloped that part of the, the kids in the class love to pick him up and pass him round the class above their heads but Owen believes he's got a higher purpose he believes that God has a plan for him that all of the he wouldn't have been born this way mm-hmm. in this place if he didn't have a higher purpose which of course everyone else just thinks he's delusional and arrogant and whatever and in the end he does have a higher purpose which is the bit that reduces you to a puddle basically but there's so much humour and that's what John Irving does so well as well as doing these Irving's a massive Dickens fan and that is obvious when you read his books he does these massive I take you then went and read I've read I went straight back to the start because Gap's a brilliant book Gap's a great book I went right back to the start the earlier books are a bit ropey Setting Free the Bears which I think was his first novel about halfway through it you see the Irving that you then see later mm. in Gap. And he also spends a lot of time kind of rewriting the same story. I mean, he's rewritten Gap about five times now. Every other book is about 
a writer. Yeah. Which, of course, you're told not to do. Don't write books with writers. Readers don't want to read that. Well, we're all still reading, are they? Absolutely, you know? yeah. But it's the character of Owen Meany, though, that, that really sets that book apart for me. From I love all of his books, but there's never been a character like Owen. Because, again, when I was... <coughs> I'd read it a few years ago, but when I, was, when I got your list and I was doing... Can I just Googling back to refresh my memory? Yeah. And one of the things I read, they mentioned, I don't know if you've ever read a book called The Tin Drum by no, Gunther no, Grass, which apparently slightly influenced them. Yeah. It's kind of set in Germany, and it's a kind of, again, a kind of strange character. He's yeah. the main character, Oscar. Uh, that is well worth reading as well. Maybe yeah. slightly darker, I think, than A Prayer for Own Meaning, uh-huh. but it's a, it's a great book as well. And the book that you've chosen is Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which is a yes. classic graphic novel. Yes, well, I, I've covered graphic novels a lot in uh, Strong Words, but I think this, is a, this has got to be contender for the, the greatest graphic novel of all time. I've given it to a lot of people as a gift, to people of all ages. I've given it to my daughter, who is uh, currently uh, 16 and not given to reading books at all, and she, uh, she swears she read it. But uh, I think it's, it has so much going for it. You know, people don't know it. It's a graphic novel about a man in New York in the 80s, I think, who decides he's going to interview his father for a graphic novel project. And his father was in Auschwitz and in Poland, I think, before he was arrested in a ghetto, before he was arrested and taken into the camps, as, as, and as was his mother. And it's his, his attempt to interview his father, with whom he has a very difficult relationship, about those years of before the war and then trying to evade the Gestapo during the war, being in a, a ghetto and then being in Auschwitz. There's, I mean, there's so much in it. It's this history, biography. It's very modern because of the, the graphic novel aspect of it. It's very visual. It's great storytelling and really moving, but also this him trying to come to terms with his father, who's such a difficult individual to get on with, um, because he's so he's really mean. He's um, not particularly um, sort of open, understandably, about what he's done. You know, he's a very jaundiced view of human nature and uh, relationships. So it's quite a sort of friction between the the interviewer and the the interviewee, the father. And obviously, the great sort of thing about Mouse as well is that it re- represents the characters as animals. So I think the Jews are mice and the Gestapo are... I think they're cats. I think they're cats and the poles are pigs. It's a fantastic sort of way of personalising it and telling individual stories, but also putting it in, a, in this context that is completely unique by doing them as, uh, as animals. It's extraordinary. Children should be made to read it at school. Because I often find, uh, whenever I'm doing the podcast, there's always one book in, in any guest's choice, which is the one which I haven't read that I want to read. And this is a, a book which I'm, I'm aware of, but I've never read it. Because I watched, remember watching a documentary about Art Spiegelman, and it's, it's just, it was a fascinating, it's a fascinating documentary. And I think, as you say, I think it's, it's an important book that people should, te- should read in terms of obviously the history, but in a way... And I, I'm not sure for me it was whether it was just, you know, I'm not really, probably from when I stopped reading comics as a child, I haven't really gone back to graphic novels. But again, I know people who are very much into graphic novels and are very much, they are a literary genre. And I think people who don't read them are maybe too easy to, or too quick to dismiss them yes. as comics, which they are most definitely not. 
yes, I completely agree. You know, I mean, I think if people, if they're not exposed to a graphic novel, they're, they're very difficult to get them to pick one up, you know, because like you say, they assume they're either for children or they assume that they are something to do with superheroes and, you know, sort of Marvel comics and that kind of thing. Uh, but they're not, you know, you know, a lot of them are absolutely extraordinary. You know, the quality of characterization, the quality of artwork, the quality of, you know, structure and plot and the emotion that they pack in, into them is, uh, is incredible. And this, you know, so Mouse is just, math. I mean, there's, there's absolutely nothing like it. And so I think it's just as a method of, you know, just really simple education to those people who aren't familiar with that period of history. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily original and accessible uh, way of uh, telling that particular historical period. You mentioned you'd give it as a present for your daughter to read and you said she'd, said she'd read it. What was, her, what was her reaction to it then? Well, she said she, said, uh, you know, she, said she really enjoyed reading it. It was positive, but, uh, you know, she's... Uh, I didn't. I didn't sit her down and ask her questions about it. You know, I didn't. I didn't make her do a, a mock uh, GCSE <laughs> on it. So it's entirely possible she might have looked at it for five minutes and say, "Yeah, that's enough. I think I can. Uh, I think I can wing it." And uh, if it makes the old man happy, then I'll say, "Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Great." Because the other thing, I, and again, I mentioned this right at the start in terms of how strong words is put together and how you know there's fiction, non-fiction, graphic novels. They take their place, and again, it's maybe for. You know, I've touched on the fact that maybe a lot of people are either unfamiliar or dismissive of graphic novels, but I think the good thing of Strong Words is when you're reading the magazine, it takes its place alongside books for you know, fiction books, non-fiction books, books about war, cookbooks, books for children. So it's just, you've made it clear without having to trumpet it that this is just a, this is another genre that needs to be taken as seriously as everyone else. Quiet. I mean, I would urge people to check them out. You know, they're, they're, another great thing about graphic novels is they're often a lot quicker to read. You know, you don't, you're, not, you're not having to commit to uh, great chunks of, of time to, uh, to get through a graphic novel quite often. Yeah, they can have exactly the same impact or alter your view of things or view of yourself or, you know, all the things that great novels can do, great graphic novels can do as well. The next book choice, which is always, I think, a tough one for anyone who is a book lover, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is Star of the Sea by Joseph O'Connor. It is a difficult choice because what I like might not be what anybody else likes. And I have recommended things that people have hated. So, the, And the reason I chose Star of the Sea is because I've recommended that to a lot of people who have loved it. And it was also recommended to me in the first place by somebody that I worked alongside and I really loved it. And it was the first Joseph O'Connor novel that I'd read. I hadn't heard of him before that. And I enjoyed it so much that I read lots of his earlier stuff and I still read what he brings out now. And I went to see him last year at the talking at the Edinburgh Book Festival about his new one, which is kind of about sort of loosely about Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula and this theatre world in, in London at that time, which I haven't read yet, but that's on my to be read list. The reason I picked Star of the Sea is it's just this incredible, entertaining and accessible novel about the Irish diaspora and what happened um, during the potato famine and what happened and why people were so desperate to get out of Ireland. And so the Star of the Sea is this boat that is going from Ireland to America and it's 
packed full of working class people in steerage who are there for all kinds of different reasons. And you sort of learn bits about those characters' lives back in Ireland and why they've ended up on the boats. And then you've got the first-class passengers, some of whom are English, some of whom are Irish, and their kind of complete disdain for the people in steerage and the conditions in which they, through no fault of their own, find themselves. So it's kind of, it's a wee bit like a kind of microcosm of Irish and British society at the time. And so all the attitudes about the fact that it's much easier for the people in first class to assume that all these people who are, are suffering because of something that they've done or something that God has done to them rather than because of political policy or just natural disaster. So, so it's kind of like a microcosm of what was going on at the time. So from that point of view, it's just a really good story. But what Joseph O'Connor did, and I think it was the first time I'd ever seen anybody doing this, was he has sort of found documentation scattered throughout the book. So there's things like adverts from newspapers or little bits of articles talking about why the Irish and what they're like as a nation and sort of a lot of kind of racist assumptions and propaganda that was fed. So these things are kind of sprinkled throughout the book. And I found that that was just such an effective way of telling a story. I think, I think it's an interesting topic, particularly, you know, in relation to Scotland and the West of Scotland in particular, because I've always found it extraordinary that, I think, I think after the United States, Glasgow was the main place where people from Ireland fled at the time of the famine. Yet Glasgow's the only city of all the places where the Irish diaspora went that doesn't have a memorial to the famine. And that's been rectified just now. There's been a, a group that's been working to raise money and they're, they're going to erect a famine memorial in the East End, St Mary's in the Carlton, hopefully sometime within the next year. So it's definitely, it's a real, it's a subject which I think would, would resonate with a lot of people. Often when people send me the list of their books and usually there'll be a book that catches my eye and I'll say, right, I'm definitely going to read that. When I saw that, I thought, and you're probably the same, you've got like a, a multitude of books on your shelves. Mm-hmm that you haven't got around to reading yet. And I thought, I've got that book, I'm going to have to read it. So I, before we started the podcast, I went looking for it. I can't find it. I, I <laughs> Googled the cover, I thought, I've definitely got it. My guess is that it's probably in the same charity shop as the two books from Party Library that you've given away. Well, hopefully somebody in Party is going to really enjoy their, their reading over the winter then, courtesy of us. So I wanted to know what book you would recommend to anyone, and it's obviously one of the Muriel Spark. And it's not you just that you, you like us, right? You, you are an expert. I have yeah. sat and listened to a, a lecture that you gave yeah. uh, as well. So why the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie? Well, I've read Muriel Spark's 22 novels, 41 short stories, all her poetry, all her essays, all her biographies, and her one full-length play as well as her short radio dramas. So why this novel? Because it's not my favourite So I think when I looked at this question, I focused on the anyone. I focused on anyone and I thought, well, there's no point in me saying Portnoy's complaint. So I thought of anyone. Mm. I thought of a book that that, that really would appeal, that you could read at school and you could read much later. Now, a girl in my class at school who I now think was very much like a Muriel Spark character, and maybe even Sandy from Prime Mission Brodie, used to say of our little bright group of kids, we're la creme de la creme, because she had read... Prime Minister and Brodie, and I had not. It was not one of my teenage 
reads. It was not one of my school reads. If you got it at school, I was off that day. So I came to Muriel Spark a little bit later. And what I realise now is there's so many layers to Muriel Spark that can she, re- she can be read by the great-grandparents and the great-grandchildren. And that's a strength. So when I said anyone, I said, there's a book that's about all kinds of things. It's about fascism, poverty, gender, politics, class, Scotland, the world. It's so rich and so short and so quick and so beautifully poetic. But you could you can give it to a 10-year-old, you could give it to a, to a 100-year-old and, and hope that they would get something out of it. So that was my, my impulse there. Because I was wondering, you know, we were chatting right at the very start and, you know, asking you about, you know, maybe a book that you start reading for enjoyment, but then it... You, you know, your horizons broaden in terms of what you can do in terms of academically with it. But was there an excitement, as you say, you came to Muriel Spark later, and, and what was the first Muriel Spark novel you read? But then you're thinking, I've just discovered this treasure trove of literature. Yeah, probably The Girls of Slender Means. And as I say, she, she, she was somebody who always saw herself as a poet, and she wrote these amazing poetic novels. I mean, they're short novels, with one exception, maybe two exceptions. They are almost like novellas or stilettos. And uh, that became her style. So Girls of Slender means probably. And then Memento Mori and, and Bachelors. Memento Mori was one I almost suggested because it, we're all going to die. We're all going to die and it's something that we never really think of. And I think Memento... Spat thought about it most of her life. She converted to Catholicism at, at the age of 39. Would that have been the novel that I mentioned that you gave a lecture on? Up at I, I, gave a, I gave a lecture on The Takeover, the which is a different one. I've never lectured on Memento Mori, but I would like to. But there's a, I mean, it's got so much in it, Memento Mori. I mean, it's a group of these grannies in the care home reading their horoscopes out, which is a hilarious scene because it's what, what, what awaits them is not what's in the horoscope, as you can imagine. Uh, what but, awaits all of us, yeah, probably. Yeah, and that was because her, her grandmother had, had stayed with her in her last years and for Muriel Spark, and that had, had a very profound effect on her. So she wrote about old age like nobody else I know, mm-hmm. and a theme of old. I remember yeah, reading that, because my wife a few years, and I a few years ago made up a, a playlist of songs about being old and about being older and, and so on and what that meant. Old people have been young, young people have never been old, although some young people feel the weight of the world on their shoulders. So Prime Miss Jean Brodie, I feel, has those la- layers. It's not my favourite Muriel Spark, but in terms of recommending a book to anyone that you hope they could open later in life and find new treasures in it, that would be the line. And do you think it's interesting that that's the book that filmmakers have and, and playwrights have chosen, perhaps yeah. more than other novels, yeah. to, to adapt? And, you know, people... Yeah will be aware of, even yeah. if they haven't read the book, they'll generally be aware of it because yeah. of, of its yeah. immersion in popular culture. Exactly. And we're all going to die, but we've also all been to school, or most of us have been been to school, and those school days, school years, that's a fantastic theme, and it also makes for something great to teach. And then Maggie Smith had this unforgettable performance in the film, so I think because of the stage adaptation, because of the film... The, the downside of that is it tends to have overshadowed the other 21 novels that Muriel Spark did, some of which are extremely strong indeed and maybe better than it. But, yeah, it, it captures something. And I think sometimes those novels of childhood, you know, it's a bit like when Roddy Doyle wrote Paddy Clark. You got letters from people in, in, in America saying, this is my life, because it's like it's the David Copperfield thing. You know, we've all, we've all been there. We've all had a childhood and we've all had those... So we, we find echoes in that. I think childhood coming-of-age stories will always find a big audience. And I think that's partly what Prime Miss Jean Brodie is. It's many other things, but I think it has that forum that, that people recognise and say, right, that's at school days. As I say, I went to Postal Park Secondary, and it was absolutely nothing like James Gillespie's 
school whatsoever, and it, and it wasn't a, a single set school or anything like that. But you reckon that it, it, it speaks. Sometimes those things speak to you. So yeah. I think that's why I say for anyone, because I think Prime Minister and Bodie, you could take it home to your mother, you give it to your worst enemy, anybody at any age, and they find something in it. And I also think it's a brilliant book on the allure and seductiveness, seduction of fascism and of power and so on, and of charismatic people who are actually quite dangerous. So I think it's a fantastic novel that you can read at any stage of your life and get something new from. Yeah, and absolutely prescient in today's world absolutely. as well. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.